This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And we're here to talk about the global coronavirus pandemic. The virus is hitting a disproportionate number of black and Latino people in the U.S. In response to this and mistrust over a vaccine, the oldest black doctors association in the country creating its own vaccine oversight committee. So how will that work and how much influence is it going to have? Now, it never really totally left, but the coronavirus is making a sort of comeback in Great Britain. Is the country losing control now, or can it get a handle on things? All this week, we'll take you to California's Central Valley, looking at how the pandemic is impacting agriculture workers. Today, we focus on meat processing. The pandemic has really tested the character and resolve of all of us, so we will take a look on if we are really coping with it and how well we might be. Concerts, festivals, sporting events, you had all those tickets, right, in the spring. Those were delayed, if they're still delayed, because of course they are. We're going to try and look at how you'll get some money back if you can. Now, let's get back to how the virus is impacting people of color and what's being done to address the issue in vaccine development. Dr. Yolanda Lawson is an OBGYN. She practices in Dallas, is also chair of the Board of Trustees at the National Medical Association. Uh, Doctor, is there more of an opportunity now to enroll more minorities in clinical trials now that the FDA is announcing tougher standards for vaccine development? Absolutely. It is an opportunity, but I see it two-pronged. Not only is it an opportunity to allow more time to increase the numbers to represent those minority communities, but I also think it may be perceived as the public, right, because many people in the public, I'm already querying patients, right, and and it's a perception that it's being rushed. Um, And so I think it's the authentic thing to do for the FDA to do that. And I think, again, it garners public trust. Tell us about what your organization is doing. Is it kind of its own vetting process in order to be a trusted messenger you know, to your community? Absolutely. So um, the immediate past chair of the Board of Trustees for the National Medical Association, and so it's the oldest and largest um, association um, to represent Af- the interest of African-American physicians in our communities, but the important part and the target that the National Medical Association has always embraced is, is dealing with and eliminating health care disparities. And so we have worked not only, of course, COVID, HIV, um, payer issues, but it's about the elimination of, of disparities. And so I think that as we have um, had conversations with many of these companies. We've put out statements publicly, but we're very clear, and I think many people are clear, um, that African-American doctors, right, um, represent the interests of African-American patients because many of our patients, right, we may practice in communities um, that are primarily or dominated by African-American clients. So um, I think just that messenger, and so sometimes the messenger matters. And so when people in my community trust me, if I believe in the vaccine, I'm, I'm a, a messenger for that community. But I need to believe in it, too. So I'm really happy about the, the steps the FDA has took today. Now, the polling, as you know, is showing that uh, a lot of Americans of all colors are uh, hesitant, skeptical, concerned about the speed at which any vaccine is being produced. But African-Americans in particular 
have historic reasons for this uh, for the distrust. Can you very briefly explain to people why that is? So historically, that trust um, most commonly arises from the Tuskegee experiment, whereby African Americans um, were used in that experiment, and medications that could treat syphilis were withheld from those folks of color, um, and many of them died or suffered from those secondary um, issues, as you know, heart-related, blindness, joint issues, brain um, encephalitis from syphilis. So um, there is a long, steeped history of mistrust in the healthcare um, market from um, African-American patients and communities, and it's long and it's steeped. And I think that as as me, being an African-American physician and growing up in a community where I have family members still to this day, right, that don't trust. Um, so I'm always trying, but I do understand where it comes from. And so when you hear about these disparities, or take, for instance, what you've all heard about maternal mortality, um, many of those things that we know have happened are just at the root of racism. And so I think that it's, it's a constant and continual battle that's why I think organizations such as the National Medical Association are important, right, to help with messaging. Dr. Yolanda Lawson is an OBGYN practicing in Dallas, chair of the Board of Trustees, National Medical Association. Doctor, thanks for talking to us. Great Britain is now seeing a sharp rise in coronavirus cases and people in the hospital. The government's chief scientific advisor says the epidemic is doubling roughly every seven days. The country trying a lockdown light with the threat of a national lockdown if things don't go well. Let's go to London now. Talk to Dr. Zeshan Qureshi, pediatrician and global health physician at King's College Hospital. So, doctor, what kind of restrictions are going into place now? Well, I'm really worried about what's happening in the UK. We are having coronavirus rates doubling every seven days and the predictions from our government are that we could be up to 200 deaths a day by mid-November and 50,000 new cases a day by mid-October and really we're just taking a step back and saying maybe we opened up a little bit too quickly. There's going to be more restrictions around the size of the groups, the use of face masks, the uh, amount of people working from from home, how late establishments can be open, and a bit more in terms of enforcement, you know, putting fines in place for people not wearing masks and ensuring that the fines are enforced when people gather in groups larger than are allowed. Hopefully this will get things under control, but we don't know what's going to happen. We just need to keep a close eye on things because we don't want things to escalate like they did earlier in the year. But, you know, when I uh, look at the paper almost every day, the list of countries where, you know, once they reopen things or try to reopen things, the virus comes surging back is growing by the day here in in the U.S., as, as you know. I mean, we never really did get it under anything that would resemble control. Is the, the fact of the matter that unless you take measures as strict as they did, for example, in China, it's always going to be like this. You're going to close things down. It'll kind of recede. You open it back up. It's going to come roaring back. It's like a seesaw. I think there's a lot to be learned and things that were done in China and in New Zealand where strong action was taken very quickly. A lot of people weren't comfortable with it, but it it, it was effective. Maybe we should have done that in the first place. But where we are now is we have to decide on reopening. 
and we have to reopen because we can't be in lockdown forever. The question is, are there better ways to do it? Can we have better designed face masks, for example? Can we have more people permanently working from home? Do we, can we have a world where we learn to live with the virus rather than trying to go back to how things were in the past? These are tough questions that we're going to have to really grapple with because like you say we can't have a constant cycle of opening and closing and opening and closing and people's lives suffering in the process you think there's a public appetite for this do do they realize that there need to be more rules because like we were saying you know going into the summer i think you guys felt pretty good yeah i mean uh there were politicians saying that this will be over by christmas but clearly that has turned out to be completely false. I think the challenge with the general public is it's a lot more obvious when they are experiencing short-term restrictions than it is for them to be thinking about long-term gains. And we just have to have that strong public health message that actually this will just keep going on and on and on unless we take more drastic action, unless there's greater compliance. The reality is people aren't following the rules. People, I mean... uh, I heard of um, a group of people that went to a party of 160 people in a home recently. I see people not wearing masks in pubs and the laws just being flaunted. Um, The reality is we have to take this seriously. And if people aren't taking it seriously, we need to have greater legal um, consequences for their actions. And even if there is a vaccine, um, we're going to have to live with this world for quite some time because it would take quite some time for a vaccine to really reach its optimum um, effectiveness, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm very pro-vaccinations. And I think if we do have a situation whereby we have a vaccine that everybody can take in the world that gives complete immunity, then that's really amazing. But the reality is it will take a long time to get that right. It might be the case that early vaccines aren't as good as we perhaps would hope to. And yes, we have to learn to live with this new normal and that involves massive changes to what we consider our liberty, but it's about the long term. And the greatest freedom we can have in the long term is accepting some restrictions right now. Dr. Zeshan Qureshi, pediatrician, global health physician, King's College Hospital in London. You know, as we said in our last podcast, without farm workers, well, we just don't eat. Their work is underappreciated as they're the ones who make sure our grocery stores are fully stocked with everything we need. Today, we look at the meatpacking industry in California's Central Valley. It's always been tough work, but now there's added risk. KCBS's Kathy Novak reports from Livingston, where nine workers died. About 400 were infected in an outbreak at one plant. We are a community that is mourning the loss of our loved ones, Lord. Prayer is at a vigil near the Foster Farms plant in Livingston earlier this month. I've been to funerals. It's the worst possible loss because... When they're in the hospital taking their last breaths, they're not even with their families. Community advocate Deep Singh says with Merced County among those named as a COVID hotspot, almost everyone here knows someone who has been infected. Estela Salvaña works in packing for foster farms. I am proud of my work, she says, because we feed people who need it. But I also feel sad because we are not taken care of. She got COVID in June. 
Her husband, who also works for the company, caught it too. The poultry plant was ordered to temporarily close because of the outbreak. In a statement provided to KCBS, Foster Farm says during the week-long closure, the plant was disinfected and employees were tested as part of a comprehensive program to ensure employee safety. The plant has since been allowed to reopen. Estela Salvaño wishes the new protocols had been there earlier. They should have given us powerful protective masks so that we didn't get sick, she says. There should have been social distancing, but it wasn't like that. Deep Singh says it's part of a nationwide crisis. According to the Food and Environment Reporting Network, more than 42,000 workers at about 500 meatpacking plants have been infected. The reason the meat production plants are a hotspot throughout the country is because of the concentration of labor, it's because of the conditions, and it's because of you just have literally people working shoulder to shoulder, and you have not seen management make the necessary steps to alleviate that. Foster Farm says it's increasing social distancing measures and has installed dividers where distancing is not practical. And employees with symptoms are being told to isolate. Now that she's back at work, Estela Salvania's plea to her co-workers, Do not come to work if you feel sick because you can infect others. But UC Merced's Edward Flores says for many low-paid workers in essential industries around the Central Valley, staying home may not be an option. They may have to choose between losing their job, being evicted, starving, or showing up to work with symptoms and possibly infecting others. Tomorrow, if you want to have those nice nectarines, those juicy peaches, that delicious watermelon, you're going to have to start paying attention to the Central Valley if you want to continue to be fed. New struggles for the families who pick our fruit. For Coronavirus Daily, I'm KCBS's Kathy Novak in Livingston. People are pretty resilient. We can bounce back from just about anything, no matter how bad, right? But if there's something that can really test human resilience. It's probably the pandemic and all of its problems and consequences. Can you measure, though, this resilience? The answer apparently is yes, and scientists are doing that right now. Dr. Rand Barzilai is one of them, physician scientist at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, lead author of the Resiliency Report. He talks to KYW's Charlotte Reese about what he and his colleagues found by studying stress and resiliency during a pandemic. So first, it's a great opportunity for me to say that we are still collecting data. And one of the things that we're interested in is seeing how the levels of resilience, stress and mental health, how they go, how they develop throughout the pandemic. But so far, we managed to analyze quite a lot of data. And from the data we analyzed that was collected between April and May, 5,000 people, We do have some very, I would say, uh, consistent findings that have to do with what stresses out people these days and how are they doing generally. So I can tell you that overall, our, I would say, most uh, consistent finding is that uh, people are more stressed about others than they are about themselves. And specifically, we can say that people are more worried about their family contracting COVID and even about unintentionally infecting others with COVID than about uh, contracting COVID themselves, which was a bit surprising for us at the beginning. But then we saw that more and more people take the survey and more and more people give the same responses. So we thought, well, this th- there must be something into it. And again... I, I'm, I'm happy to see now that when other labs are publishing data on stress during COVID, 
they also show a similar trend. I mean, you know, everyone uses different questions, different metrics, but the overall finding is that people are more concerned about others. Another interesting thing is that at least in April and May, and again, this is from 5,000 people, mostly from the US, but we have more than 50 countries, people from 50 countries who took it. People were as concerned, even in April, about the financial aspects as they were about actually contracting it, which for me at the beginning was a bit surprising because, I mean, I don't know now if we can remember the times before COVID or the time when COVID came out of nowhere, but it was different by then. And people, I think, were, I mean, I, I would have guessed that the health concerns will be significantly higher than the money concerns, but they weren't, they were similar. One of the things we are interested in is how this is going uh, to change or not over time. And this is one reason we are still collecting data. It's an, we don't know the answer for that yet. So this is number two. So first is people worry more about others than about themselves. Second is people are worried about money and finance to a similar extent as they are about contracting the virus. Third thing is that, um, as expected by literature, women worry more than men on average on every domain, except for, you want to take a guess, where women worry as much as men or men worry as much as women? Uh, is it finances? Yeah, you got it. You got it. So only on finance. Men worry as much as women. On the other worries, like getting it, family getting it, infecting others, dying from it, uh, women worry more. Uh, which, again, is not big news. It would have been expected, but it was nice to see because it validates the, the quality of the data. So the future for us is using the data we collect now to better understand what makes people resilient and to better flag people who are more at risk so that we can offer them treatment that is personalized for them to foster resilience and take the trajectory from that of risk to that of resilience. So did you buy tickets to a concert or festival or sporting event that was canceled or postponed because of the pandemic? Okay, did you get your money back? <laughs> I didn't think so. Because nope. if you haven't, then you should listen to this. John Breo, Vice President for Public Policy at the National Consumers League. John, I want my money back. How do I get it? Uh, well, it really depends on the event and the promoter and artist. Uh, they are the ones who uh, usually have the most power when it comes to deciding whether you will get a refund or not. Um, so what I, the best advice for most consumers is to pay attention to your email, number one. Uh, if you get an email saying the event has been uh, postponed or rescheduled, make sure and read the fine print because there may be information in there about a window that could open up where you could request a refund. Now, that may not happen. Uh, it's, as I said, it's up to each event promoter and artist to make that decision. Uh, and if it doesn't and you need that money back, uh, still don't let, you know, go to the Ticketmaster or whoever you bought the, the ticket from and ask for your, for the refund. The worst thing they can say to you is no. Uh, and finally, don't be afraid to turn to social media and make a big stink about this. 
uh, artists care about their fans, and if somebody's having uh, trouble getting a refund and you need the money to do things like pay the rent, which millions of Americans are having trouble doing, uh, that can often be a way to uh, try and get that money back that you need. Now, are there more arrows in my quiver if I've gotten a few emails at this point and they originally said, hey, we're going to shoot for the fall, but now they know we're well into next year and I can say this is going on too long and even longer than you thought it was to begin with. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is outrageous. Uh, essentially what the they're asking you to do uh, is to float these uh, promoters and artists and Ticketmaster uh, a long-term, no-interest loan where they get to hold on to your money as long as they want to. Uh, we don't think that's right. Uh, we think that folks like state attorneys general in places like California and New York uh, in particular need to get more involved and put more pressure on Ticketmaster, on ticket brokers, on artists and promoters to provide refunds to consumers when they ask for it. Uh, we don't think they should be playing games between whether we're going to postpone, whether we've rescheduled, whether we've canceled. You know, if I planned to go see a concert on a particular date and they can't do that, I should have a window to get my money back. You know, you're talking about what you think uh, various state uh, attorneys general ought to do. Are they doing it? And if not, why aren't they? Well, we know that the attorney general in New York uh, is looking into this. Uh, I don't know if the attorney general in California yet has looked into it, but I'll tell you the best way to get their interest is to make noise. Uh, it's send them emails, file complaints with the state AG, uh, post on Twitter at your state attorney general uh, what's going on. They do read those, and if enough people speak up, they do get involved. All right, so that's mostly concerts and games covered. How are the airlines doing at this point? Has everybody extended you past 21, 22? I know I have a flight, and British Airways at least has me into 2022 if I need it by now. Well, we recently, the uh, big three legacy airlines, United, Delta, and American, all announced that they are uh, getting rid of change and cancellation fees. Um, that's on top of the waivers of these fees that most of them have had in place uh, since the pandemic began. Um, so if you have a ticket uh, for a flight that you can't uh, take or that you uh, are, are, are you know, not in a position to take because you're afraid of catching COVID, uh, ask for that refund. Uh, right now, the airlines seem to be more generous with providing refunds than they were when the pandemic began. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, in, in April and May, uh, we saw an unprecedented number of complaints to the Department of Transportation uh, about uh, problems consumers have getting refunds. Um, that may be getting a little bit better, uh, but uh, it's really still up to consumers to be the squeaky wheel and ask for those refunds. That's John Brayo, Vice President, Public Policy at the National Consumers League. If you trick-or-treat this Halloween, avoid the CDC because, well, there's no one there who will be giving out any treats. It's officially discouraging trick-or-treating this year, saying many traditional Halloween activities can be high risk for spreading viruses. If you're an adult, you don't escape the guidelines either. The CDC saying indoor costume parties are also high-risk activities. All this doesn't mean you can't enjoy Halloween. The CDC says low-risk activities include carving pumpkins, doing a Halloween scavenger hunt, and having a Halloween movie night with your family. I have no candy for you, but thank you for listening. Find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. And, you know, for some people, having Halloween with the family is probably the scariest thing they've done all year. It's terrifying enough.